Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley brings us a story on the push by good government organizations and others to have Governor Hochul sign a bill requiring that limited liability corporations have transparency by listing the owners. Then we get election watch coverage from Elizabeth E.P. Press uh, talking with Democrat Shikol Struber. Later on, Andrea Cunliffe talks with Angelique Powell from Troy Foundry Theater about her experience in the arts and an interesting upcoming show. After that, Brad Monkell introduces us to the comedian John Bryce. And finally, we end with Tom Francis talking with poets, this time with Alyssa Mitchell. But first, here are some headlines. Craig Ross Jr., the... Craig Roche Jr., the suspect in Saturday morning's abduction of nine-year-old Charlotte Cena at Monroe Lake State Park, was found in good condition as being held at the Saratoga County Jail after being arraigned early Tuesday morning. A new report shows that arts are an important driver of upstate New York's economy, with arts and culture employment significantly outpacing overall job growth and artist populations increasing by more than 25% in communities where the overall number of residents has been stagnant or falling. Mike Tyson can go to a civil law trial next summer for an alleged Albany sexual assault in 1991. The lawsuit was initially filed under the Adult Survivors Act. Tyson served three years for rape he committed a few months later after the alleged assault. Russell Sage President Christopher Ames has announced that he will be retiring when his seven-year term ends in June. The Albany Common Council withdrew a uh, proposed resolution that would have urged residents not to give money to panhandlers. For the third consecutive meeting, a large Congent of people came to the meeting to oppose the measure and speak against it during the public comment period at the meeting. The Common Public Safety Community plans to vote today on the law to increase enforcement and penalties for loitering in another measure that advocates say endangers homeless, homelessness residents. And we, when we said today, we mean, of course, Tuesday the 3rd. Some of you may be hearing this on Wednesday. The U.S. Supreme Court had decided not to hear a challenge by the Green and Libertarian parties for changes in New York state election laws that make it virtually impossible for an independent third parties to obtain official party status. The new law does maintain ballot status for groups like working families and conservatives that primarily nominate candidates of the major parties to statewide office. The Washington Post reports that Republican-led House voted Tuesday to oust Republican uh, Representative Kevin, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, the first such removal in congressional history. And that's it for the headlines. Good government groups and tenant organizations are urging Governor Hochul to sign a bill requiring limited liability corporations to disclose their owners, arguing that it will reduce the state's role in global money laundering and corruption. Much of that opposition comes from New York City's real estate market. Tom Speaker of Revenant Albany speaks with Mark Dunley. We're talking with Tom Speaker, who is the uh, legislative director of Reinvent Albany, and, and they and quite a few other groups 
are urging uh, Governor Cuomo to sign legislation which would require what's known as limited liability corporation to disclose their owners. Uh, so, Tom, maybe just give us who exactly is reInvent Albany and what exactly would this legislation do? Uh, so reInvent Albany is a government watchdog organization that focuses on creating an open and accountable New York state government. Um, what the LLC Transparency Act would do would require, it would require LLCs registered in New York State LLCs as uh, limited liability corporations uh, to provide the names of their beneficial owners, that's their real human owners, to the New York Department of State, and then for that information to be listed in a public database. Now, what, why do you know people set up um, LLCs? I understand it's at least partially to sort of limit their you know legal responsibility in case a particular company or project goes financially belly up. Yeah, there's a variety of reasons. Um, one reason, and that's the main purpose for this bill, is to hide the identity of the owners behind a property or a business. Um, another reason is just for financial maneuvers. Um, it's relatively easy to set up LLCs compared with uh, the standard corporations. Um, and the expediency um, gives an incentive for people working in, in business to set one up. Uh, on the darker side of things, some people will use LLCs uh, for things like money laundering or um, sex trafficking and that kind of thing, uh, because it can be so difficult to get information about who's behind them. So who are some of the groups that are, you know, promoting the governor signing legislation, which, you know, obviously has passed both houses, and who are the groups opposing it? Well, there's quite an unusual coalition of supporters for the bill. Uh, so you have groups that work on tenants and housing rights who support it, because uh, if a tenant wants to negotiate with the landlord over their rent, it's quite difficult if they don't know the identity of that landlord. And that's a problem that LLCs have created before. Uh, we have several unions, such as the Hotel Trades Council and uh, District Council of Carpenters in New York City. Uh, they support it because of wage thefts by LLCs, um, companies that aren't properly paying their workers. Uh, Raymond Albany and groups like ours, we focus on transparency uh, and we are very strongly anti-corruption. Um, and because uh, LLCs have been identified as a major source of corruption internationally, um, that's why we support this bill, because we think that the sunlight will be a great disinfectant. Uh, and then recently, uh, Comptroller DiNapoli and Attorney General Tish James have also come out in support of the bill for similar reasons, uh, as well as Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Um, one reason that law enforcement officials like them support it is that um, a lot of investigations by officials in their roles are sparked by complaints by the public. And having this information made public will uh, help them in their efforts to identify corruption happening in New York State. And who opposes it besides probably the people who uh, have LLCs? Um, well, we know that the Business Council of New York State has weighed in on the bill, um, opposing it on the basis 
that it might be an invasion of privacy, but there's actually a provision in the bill that allows those who have significant privacy interests to uh, waive their names being disclosed in the database. Um, and previously, we know that the Real Estate Board of New York was also um, weighing on the bill and, and trying to prevent its passage. So I, I did, um, from somebody's article, I saw that the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that the large concentration of LLCs in New York City, apparently about 37% of Manhattan properties are owned by LLC shell corporations, um, is one of the reasons why uh, New York City is um, maybe the best place to hide and launder ill-gotten gains. You know, have there been particular examples of, um, you know, where this is been shown to be a problem? Yeah, so um, the New York Times and New York Magazine both had great reports uh, back in the 2010s on New York City being a like major spot for um, gains to be stashed through LLCs and shell companies. Um, and yeah, like Manhattan, as, as you noted, uh, it, we recently did a report that found that like 37% of the properties um, in Manhattan are registered with LLCs, which means that in, in many cases, you can't get information about who's behind them. Um, and so often when reporters like the Times um, have looked into this, uh, what you'll find after years of digging that it will be some oligarch who's, who um, is you know from another country uh, in many cases, um, like they might be from Russia, they might be from China, um, and they've been uh, the owners behind these properties that take up um, a lot of real estate in the city. Um, and then beyond that, like the uh, the UN and World Bank issued a report um, some years ago that found that the one thing that most corruption scandals have in common throughout the world is shell companies like LLCs. Um, and so that shows why having such a high proportion of properties in New York, and particularly Manhattan, be hidden behind LLCs God, can create quite a problem. Now, of course, there is this major you know, business fraud case underway um, uh, down in New York City, basically the Attorney General going after uh, Donald Trump for fraud. Now, Mr. Trump himself seems to like to put his name on the front of the buildings. Um, so my guess is he doesn't do a lot of LLCs. Maybe that's incorrect. But I, does he perhaps sell a lot of properties or condos to LLCs? Um, that I don't particularly know. I, we're focused on New York State. I, I will say that like, I, I know that um, some companies owned by Trump have been under LLCs, but it seems pretty obvious in most of those cases who the owner is. So um, it's, um, I, I think in cases like that, it's more the, uh, all, of, all of the alleged crimes that are happening seem to be out in the open instead of in the darkness, like in the cases that we're talking about. Yeah, there's just been a lot of allegations that uh, Trump rebuilt his empire under you know money laundering from organized crime and other Mm -hmm. um, countries. I just wonder if LLC has sort of um, 
um, played a role in that. Now, the, I, my, my assumption this bill does not address this, but I understand one of the problems with New York's campaign finance law is that each LLC is, is treated as a separate entity, even if it's perhaps owned by the same person. And so somebody could own a lot of LLCs and then make very a lot of campaign contributions because each LLC can make their own individual contribution. Is that correct? And does this bill address that at all? Um, this bill does not address LLCs as they relate to campaign contributions, but the state did create a requirement a few years ago. I think it was back in 2018 or 2019 uh, that when um, people contribute to campaigns through LLCs, uh, that the owners of those LLCs be disclosed to the um, state board of elections. Now, for unfortunately, it doesn't seem like for some time that there was much follow through on that law. And the uh, the New York Focus, um, which is a great um, online publication that focuses on investigations um, in New York State, uh, found that uh, the Board of Elections had actually for some time not been uh, looking into uh, who the owners were. Um, and then after that, Reporting came out. Uh, it looks like uh, the board got its act together and started. Okay. We, we, we only about a half a minute left, so I'll, I'll finish up with where Governor Hochul gave me an indication that she's going to sign or veto the bill. And if people want to express their opinion one way or the other, Governor Hochul, how best can they do that? And your website. Yeah. Um, so In twenty have, seconds. Right. We we have not seen any indication of whether or not the governor will sign the bill. But if people want to find out more information, um, they can, of course, go to our website. That's reinventalbany.org. Thank you very much, uh, Tom Speaker, Legislative Director, Reinvent Albany. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine. Uh, and now we go to our election coverage with EP talks with one of our candidates for Troy City Council District 2, Democrat Shakole Struber, an informational security officer. On the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, as we continue our election coverage today, we're talking with the Democratic candidate for Troy City Council District 2, Shakol Struber. Shakol, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. There's not a ton of information about you out in the internet world. So I was wondering if you could tell our audience just a little bit about yourself, your background, your work, et cetera, how long you've been in Troy, uh, just so we can learn a little bit about who you are. That makes me really happy that there is nothing on the internet. I am a millennial. I grew up with the internet, but I work in the cybersecurity field right now and have tried really hard to keep it sparse on purpose. I chose Troy as my home about seven years ago. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, but not this far upstate, down near Woodstock. I uh, lived in Washington, D.C. for quite a while for my undergrad. I went to American University, which is where I really got into politics. American is the most politically active school in the country. I was totally into that. Worked on campaigns, was at all of the rallies. Like That's where I really got into the community organizing and politics. And afterwards, somehow ended up in information security. You know how it goes, especially when one graduates during a recession, you take what you can get. And that's how I ended up in the cybersecurity field and have been there ever since. Um, I am now the chief information security officer of my company. Uh, not that I own my company, but pretty, 
pretty big responsibility for the company being responsible for keeping everybody cyber safe and for our clients as well. Go me for not having things on the internet that will mess things up in life, but that is how hackers get you. So I encourage everybody to remove what they can from the internet. Thanks for that, Shakol. And what is an information security officer? Um, I'm responsible for the policies, procedures, and all of the documentation about literally information. So my company does IT and we do have clients, that's how we make money. Uh, but that means that we have a lot of data from clients. So imagine you're one of my clients. Uh, I would have things like your name, your birthday, might have a copy of your driver's license because sometimes you need that to open uh, an internet account and my company is responsible for that. Uh, you have details about what data lives where and who has it and things that hackers really, really want for money. So I'm responsible for keeping all of that data as secure as humanly possible with the understanding of everybody will get hacked at some point in time. But I'm the person who is helping prevent the hacking. Well, thanks for going a little bit further into that. So now with that, I'm curious, what brings you to apply to uh, District 2 Troy City Council uh, for the representation there? A lot of my day-to-day -day life in cybersecurity is about reading and understanding requirements from organizations like the DOD and the SEC and HIPAA, all of those acronyms and then translating it into language that business people and end users can understand in order to make good decisions and good plans and good budgets. So city council is, I don't wanna say the same thing, but very, very similar in being able to understand the bureaucracy and the red tape and what things actually mean and being able to communicate that to the residents here of Troy. And I think that's part of what is missing in a lot of local government because they focus so much on just making the laws and enforcing the laws and they don't focus a lot on the accessibility of those laws like how are how is anybody any one of us supposed to be a good citizen if we don't actually understand what these laws mean to us valid point speaking of running for district two city council I imagine it's a little bit of a push and pull for you in this way that you obviously, because of who you are and what you know about cybersecurity, want to keep yourself off of the internet as much as possible. But in this campaign season, you want people to know who you are. How do you balance that? And how are you letting people know that you are running for Troy City Council? I have opened up my social medias to be less private for the campaign. I will probably change it back as soon as the campaign's over, honestly. Uh, but there's a lot on social media and I am very involved with it. Uh, any of the organizations that are trying to do things, the other candidates, city council directly, the library yesterday, I am very active there. And I'm also out and about all of the time. I'm trying really hard to just talk to everybody and I support Troy often in a lot of ways. Uh, you will often see me spending my money in Troy. That is my preference. Uh, so seeing me around town, talking to me, even if I'm not you know, knocking on your door necessarily right now, I've been talking to a lot of people just naturally in Troy. 
And as you talk to people in Troy, maybe as you start to get to these final days of campaign or final weeks of campaign season, what are you hearing? What is important to constituents in District 2? There are two main things that I've been hearing about. Uh, One is the pool at Knickerbocker, which has been going on for a very long time, and talking about what the holdup is. So with the accessibility of government and understanding what's happening and how that relates to them, a lot of people don't realize that the Knickerbocker Park is not actually owned by the city of Troy. It's owned by a a nonprofit that has a board and they have a say in the decisions and the contracts and all of that. So in a lot of residents' heads, Berg was being ignored and, you know, South Troy got their pool, why don't we have ours? But there wasn't that understanding of the why. So that's a big conversation that we've been having so that they can kind of understand why it's taking so long. Not that it should. I would like to cut through the red tape and actually make it happen. But knowing the why helps a lot of people be less angry. And then you also know where to direct your questions. Secondarily, of course, everybody is asking about the crime in District 2. And it it is a very big deal here. There's been a lot of questions about how people can be more safe, both in their homes, on the streets, what they can do. So the community police department is doing a lot with that. And that's one of the things that I am encouraging residents to do is any tips that you have, let the community police know. Uh, They walk the beats all the time. And most things that we see are not, you know, emergency necessarily, but having them know, you know, I saw this car parked on this block three times this week, this make, this model, this license plate, it looked like there was, you know, something sketchy going on. That way they know where to be looking, when to be looking, what to look for. Doing our part to say things as we see things is really important. So that's been a big part of our conversations. And as you look toward post-November and city council, say you are the candidate that is elected. Are there committees that you are excited to serve on in Troy City Council? Or uh, what will you be excited to work on first? Well, I think I'm a shoo-in for the technology committee. I'm very excited to be working on that. As I've been going through this process, making sure that Troy's cybersecurity is up to snuff is incredibly important. I'm sure everybody heard about uh, the Oakland hack last year where the city of Oakland in California quite literally got hacked. I very much do not want Troy to be the next one having that happen and making sure that we're in a place that we're protected and we're ready is very important to me. Great. And as I already have run through our 10 minutes, um, I wonder why our audience should vote for you, Shakol Struber. Well, I have been in leadership positions my whole life, from being the eldest daughter of a very large family to being the editor of my school newspaper in high school to now being in the C-suite at my job as the CISO. And I have a knack for listening to people and being able to represent their needs as they come up, everybody has different needs and everybody's coming from somewhere different. And being able to translate that to legislation, to the different departments in Troy, 
I'm ready and willing to hit the ground running to make Troy better for the people who live here. And Shakol, uh, I will give the last word to you. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure our audience knows? That I'm here for them. I hate politics. The campaign is not my favorite. I'm going to put that out there. I'm doing this because I, I know I'm going to be really good at the job. And I would not be doing it if I didn't care about Troy and the people who lived here. So I don't want anybody to think of me as you know, their representative, like I'm an extension of them and I'm here for the residents. Shakol Struber, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. And thanks to Elizabeth E.P. Press for all of her election coverage. And you can hear her earlier pieces on other elections and other candidates on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And for those just tuning in, I'm Kellen McPherson. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 898.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, stranger on the street. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now we turn to lighter topics. Arts advocate and actress Angelique Powell is the director of Troy Foundry Theater's Hard Candy and Misdemeanors. You will hear Angelique talk about the problem of exclusivity of representation in the arts and her own journey through the arts leading to her directorial debut for the world premiere of Hard Candy and Misdemeanors. This is Andrea Candler for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine in conversation with Angelique Powell, arts advocate and actress, about her journey through the arts to directing for the Troy Foundry Theater. Um, after graduating college, uh, I went to Ithaca College and, and, you know, I graduated with a liberal arts degree in psychology with a concentration in women's studies and African diaspora. So when I graduated in the recession, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with this liberal arts degree and uh, kind of uh, found myself in a variety of positions. I left and lived in Boston for a bit and then I moved back home and I rediscovered this love of acting that I had had as a kid. You know, I went to Doyle Middle School, I went to Troy High, then I transferred and went to Shaker High. And in all of those places, I participated in the arts in some way. Uh, so when I moved back here, I rediscovered that love of theater, working at a community theater called Schenectady Civic Playhouse. And I kind of haven't stopped since then. I, I really found my home in theater. I'm sure I've seen you in other productions, like at the Black Theater Troupe of Upstate New York. Yep. 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 How did you leap from acting to directing? How did that Oh, my happen? goodness. So I was finding a lot of success in performing. Fortunately, I found myself a home at Troy Foundry Theater in the midst of the pandemic because other theaters had closed. And so I've been with the company for a few years now. And David Gerard, our artistic director, played it pretty smart and has continued to hand me staged readings. 
and kind of get comfortable with the idea of uh, being a director. Let's give who's listening an, an idea of what the play is about. Absolutely. So Hard Candy and Misdemeanors takes place in the break room of a bit of a rundown convenience store called The Quickie Shop. Roxanne Brewer, played by Bianca Stinney, owns The Quickie Shop and manages it. And she it's very clear that she's doing the absolute very best she can. And she's got this like very amazing can-do attitude that at times is probably performative for the people around her um, and herself. She's really trying to convince herself that she's got it together. And at the top of this play that takes place in one day in this one break room, Roxanne coming in with her younger cousin, Lily Brewer. Lily, played by Cubalis Dales, is clearly a young person who has been through a lot. The young people in this play have been through enough in a way that, you know, trauma makes you grow older than you need to at times. I think both of the young people in this show are wise beyond their years because of the things that they've been through. And then throughout the course of the play, we get to meet the other people that make up the employees or the community of this convenience store. And what we see happen is the people around you, you you don't always get to choose your family, but you, at least not your blood family, but you can choose the people that you call your family or your community. Um, And that's what happens throughout the course of this play. Uh, Troy Foundry Theater, we produce our work. Typically we devise our work. So this is like one of the very first times that we are working with like a very brand new script, a world premiere script, is fully scripted for us by another playwright. This play has been written quite recently. I mean, only began writing about three, four years ago, and he's been given awards back and forth, up and down, and... It's incredible, yeah. Where really, as you can see, um, all of the places that he's showing up and all of the places his work is being produced across our country, really. He submitted it to Troy Foundry for stage readings that ended up being works that I directed. And the first work that I directed was the underground color wheel that I did as a part of our Dark Day Mondays. So Troy Foundry Theater, when we don't have productions going on, we will do a Dark Day Monday. Um, You know, the theatrical process, typically the Dark Day is Monday. That allows other folks to be able to come and see these performances, even when it's just a staged reading. What it also allows actors who may be in another production have the ability to come and work with us in this stage reading capacity. We did a stage reading of his play, The Underground Color Wheel, and I got to direct it for the first time. And it was the first time I really was like, maybe I can do this thing. We recorded it and sent it to Chris. Chris sent me a message that was just like, the way that you interpret my work, the way that you understand my work, it's as if we're family. And we've kind of been family ever since. So when David called me and asked me to direct, I thought, oh, well, yeah, I got I got to do that one, too. Um, and Chris and I are, you know, a bit a bit cerebral in the same way. And so oftentimes, you know, I'll send him a message and ask him, hey, what does this mean? Or, or did you mean this fully when you wrote this? Um, and what do you think about this? And so it ends up being a really collaborative process to then get to further the process by bringing Chris up here to Troy and working with him for five days. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a luckier experience, not just for myself, and not just for our company, but for our actors. You know, they got to help cultivate these characters, questions that they had 
were able to get answered through the process of doing this development workshop with Chris for five days. It was an incredible experience. And I think all of us were so fed creatively, Chris being one of them. Our actors were so excited to be a part of this experience. Chris was so excited every time he had new pages and these actors who are top notch, like some of the best actors that we have in the region, you know, reading his work cold. And he's like, wow, that sounds incredible. This being my directorial debut, Emily Currow and David Gerard have served as as my mentors in leading me through this process, right? You know, I've, I'm always on stage, so I don't necessarily see all of the ins and outs of what goes into putting up a full production. Fortunately, I'm extremely observant, which you need to be to be an actor. And so I, I had kind of an idea, but they definitely helped to guide me along the way. And then... Our lighting and sound designer, uh, Willie David Short V, uh, is another company member to Troy Foundry. Rose Biggerstaff is our production stage manager. She's new to Troy Foundry um, with this production. And that really makes up our team. And then our technical director, Travis Wright, is another company member of Troy Foundry Theater. And so what was really important to me is that the folks who are making up the production staff on on-site every day for this production, we're all BIPOC as the actors are. And as I am, I think it's important to also mention that I am a Black woman. Um, our playwright, Chrissy Light Black, is a Black man. Willie David Short, the fifth, is a Black man. And Rose Biggerstaff is a Black woman. So this team is largely made up of BIPOC folks. And I, I thought that that was important, not only for this play, but because oftentimes we have this conversation about representation and it ends up stopping short at representation of who shows up on the stage, right? But we also need to be cultivating in every way of the production, the directors, the lighting designers and the lighting executors, the sound designers and the sound board operators, the production stage managers. And when you have a show that's bigger than you know necessarily my show, you have a ton more people who are associated with this production and several more jobs that are associated with this production. And I think it's important that when we talk about representation, we talk about it in every single way that the production or the theater is affected. Theater is coming out of the pandemic beautifully. There's been several shows that have come out of the pandemic. And oftentimes we hear that a cast wasn't more representative of the community because it couldn't be done that way because there weren't enough actors or is that, you know, there are no black actors in the capital region. So that's why those shows aren't done. You know, my show proves that that's not true. <laughs> and my show isn't the first show that proves that, right? You know, there's been several shows that have come out of the pandemic and, and we've all been here this entire time. Um, so I think on a really, really basic level, it is important to happen because it needs to be seen that it can be done. But in other ways, why it's important to happen is because, you know, no one community is representative of all the art that exists in the world. And I think it's very scary when we get into a world where there can be only one voice that is representative of anything, of any kind of art, right? Black people aren't a monolith, as white people aren't a monolith, as women aren't a monolith, as men on a monolith, as gender non-conforming people are on a monolith. And we all have very different um, experiences and we all experience those experiences differently. Commonality and the similarity that we all experience, no matter what our- I, You know, yes, 
I do, from my perspective, through the course of history, we've gotten complacent with focusing on commonality, right? Commonality is important. It is important. It's important as a part of this human experience, and we all share so much. But I don't want the commonality to to be what overtakes recognizing how important it is to recognize differences, right? Differences should be celebrated. There's nothing wrong with differences. And I think that when we focus on commonality and when we try to thread like this through line between all of our experiences, I think that we're doing a disservice to celebrating all of the ways in which we're different. And also at times it can then make differences seem scary. And when you're talking about black people, differences being scary can have extremely, extremely dangerous ramifications. So I, yes, I love commonality and I love people being able to share space in a common goal. I'm all about it, but I also want to uplift differences in a way that we cannot be so afraid of each other. This has been Andrea Cunliffe with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, speaking with actress and director Angelique Powell. And thank you to Andrea for producing that theater segment. For more segments on on the Troy Foundry Theater and other groups, visit our website, mediasanctuary.org. Bria. And now we turn to our weekly segment featuring a local stand-up comedian. So let's welcome back producer Brad Monkell. Thank you so much, Bria. And thank you, Kaylin, also. Great Welcome, to be here. Yeah. And who do you have with you tonight? Well, I'm tonight... sorry, who do you have with you for this episode? <laughs> Bria. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, uh, well, t- I'm lucky to be joined today by uh, not only a uh, heavyweight member of the open mic scene who comes out a lot, works hard, and is always showing up the other comics, but also a regular opener at the Funny Bone in Albany and the Comedy Works in Saratoga. All around very funny guy, John Bryce. Thank you for joining us. Today. Thank you for having me. This is this is weird. Oh yeah, I know. It's <laughs> a comedy segment on such a wholesome show, but I know they, I place. appreciate that they want to, you know, spotlight the scene. I know it's nice. It's got like a very health food store kind of vibe here. It's, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, this and is it, fun. yeah, and it's good that you guys appreciate the comedy scene because things have been going well in the scene, and I'm I'm relatively new compared to you. I've only no, I think we started do- around the same time. Really? I thought how, when did you start? Because I want to know. I don't think we've ever really talked about it. Uh, 2019, that summer. Oh, like okay. right before COVID. But see, I did it once at the end of 2019. I didn't really start till 2021. So you've definitely been logging some more time than me, and the, the shows, and you know how well you've been doing. But like, what was the, what was your first mic like? What's uh, the story it like? was absolutely terrible. <laughs> it was at the Comedy Works in Saratoga, and me and my buddy Brian uh, went up and signed up, and I was number 40. Whoa! Yeah, it was yeah. a 40 person. Those are mic. always fun. The mic started at like 10 or 11 o'clock. I didn't go up till like 2 in the morning. And I was very nervous. And me and my buddy got very drunk um, at a place called Desperate Annie's, which is a great bar in Saratoga if you want to get very drunk. And uh, yeah, I got got blackout and went up in front of three comedians who hated my guts. (laughs) And I bombed with with a joke about Tinder. I got like one laugh. With a joke about Tinder. 
That's pretty good for three and people. That was, yeah. <laughs> um, that was it. So, like, did you take off right from there, though? Like, were you like, hooked, or like, how soon did you? Well, yeah, it again? I was hooked. Like, I got the one laugh, and I'm just like, this is what I do now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it yeah. was the one laugh. You know, and it's like a hit a crack. You know what I'm saying? It's but, you know, I wasn't good for like I sucked for a minute. Well, like, how long did it take you to go back and like build, how consistent were you in like say in your first year of doing it or before COVID? Uh, I'd say like when I was a month in, I started going every day. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. I was a month in, and I was just like, I have to do this every night. That's how and it I goes. Get, like mad if I couldn't go at night. Well, and again, we're lucky that we can do it. Yeah. That we that so much around here. It's a good scene. Yeah. I mean, I was really lucky specifically because, um, and I'm not going to say what this was, but we started an open mic uh, during COVID in the summer of 2020. Which, if you're going to do the math on that, was super illegal. <laughs> <laughs> it was very illegal. and uh, But we did it, and everyone kind of, like, let us do it. Everyone was cool about it. You know what I mean? Like, people were pretty excited to, like, be doing anything at all. Yeah. So, like, no one was really trying to, like, break regulations and that. Like, so like, no one was really getting us in trouble. Yeah, yeah. But we were really lucky because there was a good eight, nine months where we were doing comedy, live comedy, and nobody else was. Yeah, I mean... Like, you hear about, like, people in the city, they were like, oh, we're going to do uh, drive-ins, and we're going to honk for laughter and stuff like that, and, like, we were, like, doing real comedy. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I the scene has been strong since then, and I didn't really get to see much of it before then, but I remember out, outdoor open mics in that era when I was trying to come around in, in the park. Dude, we you all just sit around the on yeah, the amphitheater. And there'd be, like, a guy drinking a 40 out of a bag just, like, yelling at us from the bag. <laughs> yeah, people, like, like heckling us from down, like, down in, like, the park walking path. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. And, like, we had, like, very vulgar people yelling as children are walking by. I mean, it's that not too. good. It's that not, too. It's, it's the best. Tough. It's tough when you mix open micers and... And normal people you just walk a passerby. That's it's, why, like, when you introduced me, you said a heavyweight in the open mic scene. I'm just like, that's the worst compliment I've ever gotten. Well, the, okay, listen, <laughs> open mic, my entire life. Hold on, John. <laughs> open mics are the obviously the training grounds. They're the starting point. But yeah. it's it's beautiful to see a comic who's already getting the work and the laughs and comes out ever like most mics and does great at them. And it makes my open mic that I host look good when you yeah, come to it. True. So thank you for coming to it. Because <laughs> you do great. You're well, okay, okay. Now that you put it like that, I'm happy to grace your mic <laughs> with my presence. All right. Be careful. Bree is going to roast you again like she did off air. <laughs> if, you're, if you get too big for your britches. <laughs> I wear very tight pants. Yeah. So. You're in luck that Kaylin has my mic turned off. <laughs> Oh, um, but it's fine. she was uh, roasting me too hard. Yeah, <laughs> but so what I want to ask though is, you, like I said, you do great, and in like a lot of the, you know, in open mics, there's you know, there's a lot of trying out new stuff. People coming in, looking at their notepads. You're very good at coming in with your material in your head. You know, you know what you want to talk about, and I think I've heard you say this before, but you don't like to, uh, you don't really write your ideas down as much, right? Is that no correct? No, I don't have... I have, like, a title for the idea. Yeah. Like, I have a list of, like, all the bits. But, like, I don't have them written down, really. Well, at, when I first started, and I was, like, watching open micers and stuff, and I was, like, watching, like, 40 people go up one after another, and they were all, like, staring at their notebooks, and it was just, like, even if, like, they were doing well, they'd get a laugh, and then they'd look at their notebook, and kill it would immediately momentum. kill the yep. momentum. It would immediately... Like, you know what I mean? It just, like created like this air of like unprofessionalism like you don't know what you're doing mm. and the audience immediately loses 
like respect for you and sort of you lose control of the room a little bit so i'm like i'm not gonna go up with a notebook yeah yeah so i just never have i saw mark norman live and, and heard people complain that he was looking at his notebook i mean dude it's weird dude you go and see a professional comedian they, they're like all right and um hold on a second you know what i mean and they're just like staring at a notebook and then the room's going silent everyone's just like you know what i mean it's like yeah, it's it's frustrating, but you seem to do it so naturally, and it's it. Most people like obviously when I, when someone starts out, I would recommend to them like, oh, record your sets, write your ideas out. But you have your own like flow of writing. It seems that works really well because I do that sometimes yeah. when I start a bit where I have like a keyword or a, a premise, and I'm going off of that. Yeah. But you start with that as what you remember, but you have many punchlines within that one subject. So do you do you listen to your sets back a lot too, or is that even not part of the no. equation? Because it does feel very organic. I do everything wrong. I do everything completely wrong. I should never give advice to anybody, but I don't write anything down. I don't record my sets. I don't listen back really ever. I don't have an Instagram. I don't promote myself in the slightest. Do you do you think a lot about this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Or? I think about it all day. I'm just sitting there, just thinking like a maniac all the time. <laughs> Actually, literally, you want to know what my writing process is? I get in my car and drive around for about like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very zen. Yeah, it's pretty safe. Well, bad for the environment. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad for the environment. It's not great. I had a leaky gas tank, so like every joke was costing me like 50 bucks. <laughs> you know, I just had, <laughs> just had creative juice just flowing out the, out the back of my car. And I don't think you're allowed to do that during the writer's strike. That just happened. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if they invite me into the, <laughs> into, the, into, into the union, maybe I'll strike with them. <laughs> I haven't gotten a call yet. <laughs> yeah, just you're very, you seem like a very expensive writer to have on yeah, board. Yeah, I'm very dude. expensive. It costs $50 in gas every day. Yeah. If you want any ideas out of me. <laughs> um, well, um, so I guess to get back to like the kind of shows that you have been doing. Why what children running? running there's there's an event going on today. People are learning about the Sanctuary for Independent what Media. What is this place? It's, uh, it's usually not this busy. It's kind of nice to have this, all this energy in here. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> Be honest with me. What? Am I sacrificed? What? <laughs> well, it's okay. If you have a good enough elevator pitch, I might be willing to be the sacrifice. This has been John Bryce. <laughs> no, no, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. I'm just kidding. Uh, John, you have a very loud laugh. I think you're, you're clipping the mics a little bit. Yeah, I know. I probably... Well, I should have warned, warned you. you. I did warn no. you. I said they, they said they were worried about the people in the back that were going to laugh Blowing too loud. Blowing out our listeners. I know. Yeah. Well, see, I've heard people complain. John has such a signature laugh. People will be recording their sets. And if they make him laugh too hard... It ruins the recording. It ruins their recording. I actually can't laugh during my friend's sets anymore <laughs> because they yell. Because like everyone records their sets and like they want to be able to post them online. But my laugh is so loud that... like. And I laugh for a very long time. You know what I mean? I like laughing, man. I'm a comedian. And, you know, I'm laughing and I'm sitting like right next to their phone and like I literally drown out their jokes. You can't hear any of their jokes. It's like completely unusable footage. You could just hear me laughing and going, that's a good one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it must have been a good set, but yeah. Yeah, well, not, not always. Actually, one, because you know this about me, that um, I, I laugh at people often who are on stage. Like, not with them. I laugh at them in the way that if they're doing badly, I think that's really funny because, you know, it, yeah, it's funny. I, I, it's fun to watch your friends suffer. Well, it's part of the, it's bit. part of the fun of the whole event because it's like yeah. a roller coaster. It's yeah, because you know the feeling. Like you're up there, you're just like, I know what you tried to do and you didn't do it, and that's pretty silly. <laughs> it's all silly. I I do love it, and I I mean, I think it's funny that you know that that's even something we have to worry about is ruining tapes. But it's either way. 
either way, it's good to have you in the audience. You're good. It's good to have good laughers. I've I've heard people fight over over comedians laughing too hard at their sets. Well, there's like, a, you can't use that. Well, there's like so many energy. bad comedians like who do comedy and like they're just weirded out by laughter. Yeah, they don't know how to handle it. So, uh, with about 30 seconds left, uh, can you tell us where we can find inform- more information about you and your upcoming shows? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just told you about how I do everything wrong. I don't know. I'm at the Comedy Works a lot. Check that place out on the weekends. It's pretty cool. I might be there. Uh, You're at the Funny Bone. I'm at the Funny Bone sometimes. Opening. You, uh, I'll follow Albany Comedy. Uh, yeah, there's Albany Comedy posts about shows on Facebook and Instagram. It's not hasn't been super up to date, but it's yeah, definitely no. it has info. It's definitely worth following. Do we have another page and anymore? No, another I don't page think we can so. Follow? But you're on Inst- uh, John Bryce. You're on Instagram. And no, I'm not Facebook. All right, never mind. I'm nowhere. <laughs> keep an eye out for John Just Bryce. Just look for every- me. Yes, keep an eye out I'm for John Bryce. I'm a sketchy looking everybody. guy. I'm usually wearing flannels. <laughs> but thank you again. Thank you for having thank- me. <laughs> and that was Brad Monkell showcasing local comedian John Bryce. And now we're moving to our final segment. Tom Francis brings us another episode of Talking with Poets. This week is a recorded segment with Alyssa Michelle as Tom welcomed her to the stage for the Hudson Valley Writers Guild 2022 uh, Year in Review event. Alyssa Michelle is a mother, poet, self-published author, and spoken word artist. Her poetry sheds light on life as a single mother, domestic violence, addiction, mental health, healing, and self-empowerment. Her chapbooks include Growing Pains, The Awakening, and Blooming Season. On December 17, 2022, Alyssa was one of the poets and writers who shared their work on stage at the Linda, WAMC's performing arts studio, on Central Avenue in Albany as part of the annual Year in Review event. As Dan Wilcox said in his write-up of the reading, quote, her poems are like discussions of self-help advice using her experience to guide others. It's called The Miseducation of the Introvert. I remember when they thought that the absence of my voice meant that I didn't have one, when in reality, Silence became the coping mechanism for every traumatic experience that my subconscious recorded. Speak up. But I was always too afraid to step on toes, ruffle feathers, and make waves in ways that showed I had a backbone. Losing my identity to please others at the cost of my own happiness was enough to show me that everyone that I was batting for wasn't truly on my team. Speak up. They want you to do good, just not better than them. To think that we must shrink ourselves for the comfort of others is disheartening. Speak up. I remember when they thought that the absence of my voice meant that I didn't have one until the power of my truth broke every misconception. Thank you. And my, uh, my other piece here I'll read is about being uh, the mother of a child who lost the other parent. It's called Widow Mother. 
How does it feel being the mother of a child who lost their father? It feels like never doing enough or spoiling her too much. Trying to compensate for something that she'll never tangibly have again. The challenge to find balance between sympathy and discipline. When she throws a temper tantrum, then cries out how much she misses him. As hugs suffice for the moment with reminders that she'll always be protected and that through her, pieces of him will always remain present. With timeless memories that live on through videos and photos and that the depth of his love for her will remain within her heart as she grows. It's never easy accepting the truth of death or even for a child to completely comprehend. And although as a parent I feel alone, it's apparent that his presence will forever be known. This piece is called Forgiveness. Resentment is a weight too heavy to bear and a poison too toxic to feed off of. The emotional attachment stunts our growth and its hatred rights no wrongs. How can we liberate ourselves if we're still holding on to toxicity, becoming prisoners of our egos, suppressing our own healing? Forgiveness is not granting the right of an injustice, nor does it mean allowing it to happen again. But you owe it to yourself not to give others the freedom to rent space in your head. So reserve your power to, to liberate yourself from emotional wounds. And by doing so, you liberate someone else to forgive themselves and make amends with you. So this one's called Breaking Cycles. A reflection of my mother's mistakes on top of my own. The reason I've been trying to turn a house of pain into a home. The desire to enjoy my happiness without being taken for granted by those who think I'm obligated to fill the void left from other people's negligence. I've always been the people pleaser the victim to the narcissist, the one that couldn't say no just to avoid disappointment. What you allow will continue, unaware of my enabling ways, attempting to fix everyone who shared my pain, abandoned in the dark because I gave all my light away. How could I love the right man if I wasn't taught what the right type of man was? I learned what love was not before I knew what it really was. How could I be a good mother if I was verbally and emotionally abused by mine? A reflection of my mother is what I saw when I looked at myself through my children's eyes. History began to repeat itself. The generational curse had to end. Unlearning everything I was taught is where I began. That meant not accepting less than what I deserved, loving myself even when a loneliness hurt. 
reaching into the intricate shadows of my soul, facing my demons while using them to grow. My healing process became more important than the expectations of everyone around me. If I wanted to live, I had to let go everything associated with who I used to be. The woman I was had to die many times before the new one could breathe. Thank you. I'm going to read one of my favorite ones called Solitude Thoughts. I like things that give me goosebumps. Hair standing on my skin on end. Make my taste buds water like awaken my soul type. Third eye like. Sunday morning praise. Yes, Lord, head nod and hand wave like poetic prose. Soul snaps. Releasing energy. Climax. Butterflies in my stomach as I hide the fact that there is no way around my all or nothing, no grays, only white or black. Too familiar with the space left between me and solitude. I look at myself and say there is no me without you. They don't know you the way I do, so what's the use of trying to find replacements to fill your shoes? You're the best you'll ever have, and anyone who has the privilege of sharing your energy should only raise vibes and ignite the fire of soulful intimacy. Having already been complete, help me understand the math of how two half incomplete people make a whole. When they take pieces of each other just to fill each other's holes. How does one live when the other one goes? A connection is eternal, but attachment drains the soul. See, I've always wanted to find the one with hopes of this could be it or he's like that, but I need him to be like this. It always seems as if that's as far as it always goes. But when you're unsure of what the future holds, the uncertainty of settling for his comfort zones doesn't give me a fear of commitment. More like I'd regret a waste of time when I could be with someone who appreciates and reciprocates and doesn't treat me like his boo, but his wife. So I'll take comfort in my own soul's lullabies, meet time with glasses of wine any day over his lies and why he never replied. In a world full of artificial hearts that only lead you between legs, temptation from the left because loneliness led the way, avoiding feelings as if there were STDs and when you catch them, the antidote is ghosting seem. Sometimes I wish my forehead read authentics only because my soul has no vacancies for ego, only solitude and positive energy. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. And that was Talking with Poets with Tom Francis. You can hear them every Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or on our website, mediasanctuary.org. 
And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Keon McPherson, co-host and engineer for this episode. And I'm Bria Barthel. We thank all of our fellow volunteers who made this episode possible. Those include Mark Dunley for most of the headlines and segment production, plus segment producers Andrea Cunliffe, Elizabeth E.P. Press, Brad Monkell, and Tom Francis. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. <laughs>